0: Coming up on Life as a Festival.
1: This mythopoetic way of thinking and approaching, which to me is mostly about how do we perceive or wrangle meaning right, from our day-to-day lives and from the happenings. And Bly talks about this, though, that there's this, been this collapse of the mythic imagination. And so when we operate only on mostly literal terms, it's just like a very flat surface. There's not much dimensionality. You could say, well, you know, here's the facts about climate change. Okay, that's one one way of understanding, an important way of understanding. But mythically, you know, what's going on? You could say, here's the issues with masculinity today, this and that, and stats of depression and suicide and all this stuff. Okay, yes, those are important, and that's one way. And then if we look in the, through the mythic lens, we can see, oh, a lot of other things become accessible to us that weren't before we were able to do so.
2: Hello, my friends and fellow travelers. Welcome back to Life as a Festival. Today on the show, we welcome back Ian McKenzie, who's been on the show a number of times, as I have been on his show, The Mythic Masculine Podcast. Ian McKenzie is a filmmaker and, in my opinion, an expert on masculinity through a mythopoetic lens, and it's a real honor to dive into that material with him today, which we've not yet done explicitly on this show. The occasion is that Ian is hosting a course through Advaya called Restoring Masculinity, which begins on Tuesday, March 14th, and there's a link to that in the show notes. Ian has also been hosting the Mythic Masculine podcast for the past three years, and he's been hosting conversations exploring masculinity through the lens of the mythopoetic. Our conversation starts with a history of the mythopoetic men's movement and also how there was a splinter from that into the men's rights movement. Uh, We talk about how mainstream culture is actually an anti-culture that eats culture, and this includes things like men's work and why that is a limitation to the men's work of the past and even today. We talk about what myth is and the idea of myth versus fact in the pursuit of truth. And we get into Ian's four-day fasting sit in the wilderness, which is something that he took part on, similar to a Sundance, a four-year cycle of sitting in the wilderness and what he learned from that. We dive into the mythic masculine podcast and uh, what he has gleaned from three years of doing so and finally we end with restoring masculinity and why that course is important today ian is a filmmaker an essayist and a podcaster he has written on subjects ranging from burning man to occupy wall street He has made films on topics like sacred economics and Tamara, the love school in Portugal. He hosts the Mythic Masculine podcast and created a live series called A Gathering of Stories. And he is also my friend and mentor and someone whose wisdom I tap from time to time when I am exploring my own masculinity. So without further ado, here is the brilliant Ian McKenzie.
0: Ian, welcome back to Life is a Festival. It's nice to see your face. We're back. We're going to talk about masculinity. You and Jamie Wheel
1: have been on the show the most. Well, Jamie, I'm reading his book right now as well, which I'm actually quite enjoying. So I think I first heard about him from your podcast. So it's good synchronicity. You're reading uh, Recapture the Rapture?
0: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, he's got an interesting... He says a comment about like, (laughs) we're basically in this moment of crisis and the people who have access to the most transformational technologies can't even make it to the starting line with their shoelaces tied and it's a typical jamie wheel scathing indictment but it actually is an interesting opener for this show because we are in a state of crisis you and i have talked about how masculinity in general is in a state of crisis but we're in a global state of crisis or a meta crisis a hyper object hyper object what does that mean yeah Hyperobject,
1: I mean, I came across this not about five years ago, I think, but essentially just exactly what you're saying. It's like something that is, uh, culminates in a kind of vastness that is, in a way, very difficult to conceive the whole. It's that big, even if we try. So the term, I believe, is known as a hyperobject. So you could say climate change is a hyperobject.
0: Wow. Hyperobject sounds like something you would discover in space if you were like, your little exploration yeah. spacecraft and be like, "Mate, it's a hyperobject. object. <laughs> shields shields up <laughs> which maybe that is the experience here but the point yeah. but Jamie's point is basically that there is a need to have our shoelaces tied for this race and i think about that in terms of something that we've discussed a lot which is the idea of the aspirational masculinity what it means to be a man as an aspirational category as something that is he who is no longer a boy not the male who is not female. But the idea of being a man and the aspiration of wanting to be a man as a kind of maturation is something you and I have talked a lot about. And there is a need for mature humans and leadership from mature humans. And we are in a crisis of maturity in many cases because people just can't seem to get their shit together to take care of these waves of crises, our leadership certainly in this country, and I think in yours as well, just is not up to the task. And that there's a there's a crisis in maturation. Do you see it so? Well, I feel there's a bit of groundwork, maybe. <laughs> if, if somebody's hearing this for the first time, <laughs> we're right, jumping they might right say, in.
1: Well, what? Yeah. <laughs> we could say, well, what qualifies you to even wonder about this, right? Or talk what about
0: qualifies it. you to wonder about it?
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a high bar. Well, I might offer, say, Well, what qualifies me, perhaps, is simply the three-year inquiry now that I've been on around masculinity, and in particular, the intersection of myth and using the mythopoetic lens to inquire around this this theme and this subject, which has been called, and currently still is, the Mythic Masculine Podcast. And so, you know, we've talked about these themes somewhat on my podcast, I've shared a bit on yours. And I would say that through that journey, I have arrived somewhere that has some sense of being able to survey the territory, to be able to say, what happened? And not from a definitive, oh, this is exactly what happened, but that you start to perceive similar patterns that can, in fact, provide some sense of recognition or meaning as we piece together, how
0: do we get to this moment and where might we go from here? So this is exactly why I want to chat with you, Ian. We've spoken about a number of topics privately and on the show. We spoke about your film, about Tamara, the love school in Portugal. And we've talked about how to manage harm in community on the podcast that we did called Wrestling with the Predator. But we haven't really gone into mythic masculinity, the mythopoetic men's movement, things that you and I have spoken about at length. And even, we even did that lovely speaking tour in Australia De-nanda. De-nanda. I like to joke that it's an American and a Canadian telling Australians how to be a man. What could go wrong? And a lot went, went a lot, right. A I lot think. did go right. So, But this is the first time on Life as a Festival that you and I are going to talk about mythic masculinity. And it's very apropos because, as you've just said, you've been in a deep inquiry and you've spoken to... Men, women, indigenous leaders, transgender people, like you've discussed the topic of masculinity through a mythic lens with many leaders and thinkers on this subject. So today we're going to kind of do a retrospective of what you've learned with an eye to the fact that there is a crisis. I mean, it's kind of obvious that there's a crisis in the world, climate change at the very least, but perhaps a ontological or epistemic crisis as well, crisis in meaning and that gender is very confusing for people, particularly in how quickly culture shifts and the different ways that different generations look at at gender and whether masculinity is a good thing at all, whether we should just, you know, down with masculinity for it is simply patriarchy. And I know that for many people and for a lot of young men, there's a crisis in meaning. And I think that is part of the value of myth is as something to cleave to in times of change and in crisis of meaning. So I think maybe as a starting place, can you explain to me and to our listeners what is myth in this context and why is it valuable in an exploration of gender? Okay, yeah, let's enter here.
1: Well, let me offer this first. So I think it's maybe it's worth saying just given, again, the current cultural climate that we happen to be in that I'm a cisgendered white man and that may disqualify me from talking about a lot of things and so I just say it up front because if somebody's tuned in and say okay what does this guy have to say he's clearly coming from a very particular gender identity in many ways seen as the I will not call the the lowest common denominator in some sense but like the least qualified to offer something interesting to say you know depending on who you're talking to now in, in this cultural climate so I say it up front to say, okay, if that's where you are, okay, take it with whatever grains of salt that you want.
0: I love that this is where you're starting. And has this informed who you've chosen to interview on the podcast and how you've been constructing that conversation? Because as an interviewer, you don't have to claim to be an expert or specialist. You just have to be professionally curious and know to ask many different people and surface many voices. So i imagine that with your acumen to start our conversation from that place, that must therefore also be a place with which you've started your podcast, The Mythic Masculine. Is that correct? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And I like that phrase, a professional wondering. Professional professional curiosity. curiosity. Yeah. I like that. I may borrow that. And I say that too, because this inquiry into the mythopoetic men's movement, if we call it that, that for me entered into and I quickly understood that largely it is cultivated, sustained, kicked off by what seems to be cis white men, largely. And so, you know, that's just part of it. And at the same time, that doesn't mean there's no value in it for others. There certainly seems to be. It's just that there's a certain limitation there that is, is true and shouldn't be universalized without sort of naming that. For me, it's perhaps most helpful to enter into how I first encountered my gateway book, which it is for so many, into this realm of thought and way of perceiving gender, exploring gender, particularly masculinity, which was through Iron John. This is a book, of course, that has become the sort of mythic Bible of the mythopoetic men's movement. And I encountered that in 2015, actually, after my grandfather died. And I was with his son, so my uncle, and we were the two that went to his apartment it's a place called salmon arm in british columbia and we were mostly estranged my grandfather and i i sought him out about a decade earlier because i was really like who is this mysterious figure that i didn't see much growing up and you know heard little about but felt there was a certain degree of kinship at least in terms of the curiosity about the world his own literary pursuits he was certainly an academic in that regard but also studied a lot of metaphysical and you know, uh, alternative relating, like he really went for it. Sort of, I think, in his later years, to kind of free himself from whatever shackles you know he understood and pursue the realms of thought and inquiry, and the ways that he could. But that pulled him away from the family, and so there was a consequence there. And so after he died, I was the only, myself and his son were the only two that were willing to go actually and tend to his things because it was like that was that frayed in the relationships of the rest of the family. But in all of his study, you know, a smallish apartment, but there's books everywhere from every topic imaginable. He journaled about absolutely everything, had very meticulous notes that he kept. And in uh, one particular area, you know, I don't know if there was a shaft of sunlight landing upon this book. I don't know if that was the case, but it felt that way, right? It felt like there was a shaft of sunlight hitting this book directly, which happened to be Iron John. And it was sitting there. I'd already, I'd thought about it. Somebody had mentioned it to me. A friend had been reading it. He's like, you got to read this. And so I said, yeah, maybe. And then there, some weeks later, it's sitting there. It looks un, like fresh, no no creases in the spine, you know, no notes in the margins. And I was like, wow, okay. This clearly felt like it was for me. I don't know if he even read it. it was that, that, Like we never talked about masculinity, but there it was. And so I knew, okay, this is the time to read it. And read it I did. And it spoke deeply to particular patterns of what was going on for me and relationship and meaning particularly as a man and I learned for the first time as well about this almost like underground substructure of myth and masculinity that at that time again 2015 it was a bubbling a little below the surface now it's burst through again quite significantly but I'd say it was still mostly underground and so it felt like discovering this vast terrain of almost a yeah mysterious history that nobody had ever told me about right at that time i was like 35 i was surprised i was like how did nobody tell me about this prior to this because i recognized of course robert bligh king war magician lover michael mead like all these characters suddenly swam forward and i started to say wow there was a huge thing that happened there was a there was a quite a big upswelling that happened in the sort of late 80s early 90s which in many ways was a response to the feminism movement of the time. And you hear this from guys like Bill Koth, who started the Mankind Project, where they really felt that it was like a throwdown to men at the time, I guess, in this case, American culture, when the women, this is the whole bra burning, this is the whole sexual liberation coming in. And there was a sense to the men from the women, like, hey, what are you going to do? You know, we're stepping forth, we're throwing off the shackles of the oppression and control. And what are you going to do about it? And so they felt, okay, we have to create some response to this, for them, it became the Mankind Project. A splinter of that actually became the men's rights movement, which they're often confused by. And of course, this has implications to this day. Can you can you um, ex- explain where, what that is? Yeah. So the mythopoetic men's movement, you could say they both took on a sense of, okay, what's ours to do? And that for the mythopoetics, they looked to myth, particularly as a way of informing their experience of gathering together of, I would say, borrowing, appropriating, trying to incorporate indigenous ways, drumming and ritual space, the cliche around heading out to the forest, drumming naked around the fire, like this all happened then. That's when that first kind of curiosity mixed with a sense of, wait, is there something really happening here? And I remember Michael Mead, when I interviewed him, actually on the podcast, he talked about how when they were doing these early men's really retreats, right out in, I think, Mendocino, in the forest, that there would be reporters ready for the men as they came out of the retreat, essentially hounding them, what did you do? What happened? Because it was that much of a significant thing at the time. And Michael Mead said, ultimately, this wasn't a movement. Like He really tried to dissuade this idea of movement because he said, when men move, typically it's to war. And so he said, this is soul work for men. It's nothing more, nothing less. And I'll just say the men's rights movement was a different splinter, which I would say, they took on this sense of we're we're hurting too, right? Is this sort of tone of it? Hey, like we're hurting too. Women, you don't fully understand our experience. And that rhetoric, right, which has a lot of truth to it, of hey, yeah, we're wounded, we're hurting too, has a lot of truth, but it ends up often being this reactive to feminism. And then you get a lot of that anti-feminist rhetoric from that side of things, which is feminism is the problem, feminism hates men. All that kind of stuff typically accrues more to the men's rights movement, which goes all the way, of course, to Andrew Tate and that whole story, which we might get into a bit later.
0: Wow, that's I'm glad you've never described that to me in that way. It's nice to see the threads emerge in different ways because I think it allows people to be more choiceful when they look at the landscape we have today. That's one of the beauties of of looking at a story, whether it's mythic or whether it's historical. You can see the threads and the branching off of places. And in a sense, when you see how something emerged in the world you can have a more choiceful relationship to it. Something else that came up here, I didn't realize that you found Iron John in 2015 because that's the same time that I found King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. And while we've done men's work together, you're like my men's work mentor. You're like my masculinity man. And it's interesting that we found these two separate seminal texts at the same time just before meeting each other. And I had read King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, and I was getting into the mythopoetic men's movement. I also am aware of this men dancing naked in the woods and old white men dancing naked in the woods. I think there's a sense that the mythopoetic men's movement and indeed Mankind Project as well was in a sense a bit tired and wasn't bringing forth a kind of new vitality, which I think is part of why things like Sacred Sons and other sort of refreshments of the Mankind Project have emerged. Can you tell me a bit about why the mythopoetic men's movement ultimately wasn't sustainable or sufficient for where we're at today and why the work that you're doing in mythic masculinity has evolved from that perspective? Well, I think it's worth saying that,
1: you know, this came forward in a number of my conversations, and one in particular with Stephen Jenkinson, where... He spoke about, I mean, his perception, he wasn't really involved in the mythopoetics. He describes a a time he actually was in the audience for a talk that Robert Bly gave with, I think, Marion Woodman, which, man, that would be an amazing moment, those two. But he said that the fundamental tension that was present and never really got solved was that there was this separation, right, between, okay, going to the retreat with the lads on the weekend and then coming home and trying to integrate that into, quote, real life. and what I would say, that's a, essentially a longing for real culture. And it's not necessarily known or understood that way by men who participate in it, right? It's more of the undercurrent because a lot of folks drawn to it tend to be those that are, are sort of in a cultureless time. We live in such a cultureless time if we're speaking about most modern societies. And the idea of what culture is then starts to be questioned, right? You start to wonder, okay, well, wait a second. We, we have a culture. But it's best understood that the dominant culture is better understood as an anti-culture, meaning it eats actual cultures, right? And if you think about the term culture, you start to recognize, oh, it's just the same as yogurt or kombucha or whatever, you know, sourdough. Like we use the same word, right? The sourdough culture, or this kombucha culture, because it's actually a living organism, right? Culture is an actual living organism. And if It's not sustained right it can go off it can sour and anti-culture needs living culture to keep going because it's not fundamentally sustainable on itself and so when you start to see that then everything begins to look a bit different which is that the great encroachment of modern culture is actually to continually eat and to commodify living cultures and then try to sell it back to them this is how the system grows this is something that Charles Eisenstein, right, named a long time ago with sacred economics, that this is the fundament of it. And so everything gets subsumed to this same toxicity, you could say, including men's work. And so this is the challenge now, and personal growth and the whole thing, right? Because we operate in a cultureless vacuum, then it only offers typically a pseudo sustenance where yeah, on the weekend, hey, oh, I had a deep transformational experience, you come home. And you're like, oh, wait, what really happened? How do I actually live this? And so, you know, the question of how did the men's work, you know, it didn't quite work out. Well, yeah, because the leap from weekend retreats to real culture is quite a abyss, right? A lot of us are trying to figure this out now who have been devoid of that for some time. And of course, this is what led me to Tamara. We don't have to get there quite yet, but that's what I want to say. And that, that issue, that challenge of what is real culture is present today in all the men's work today. We have these boutique deep dives, combo ceremonies, and all the rest. But then you go home, and you're like, "How do I live this in a way that isn't just immediately crushed under the responsibilities and distractions of the dominant paradigm?"
0: I love how smart you are. It's always so helpful to me. Um, you know, and I think that that's like when we talk about rites of passage and initiation. That's part of why it's so difficult to manufacture your own rite of passage. Because we can talk a bit about why the lack of rites of passage means that we don't have a threshold of maturity. So for me, for example, I did a full-on rite of passage in Africa that was harrowing and had all the pieces, like you could die and it was you know, terrifying. But I didn't return to the village afterwards. There wasn't a community and a culture that witnessed me as a boy, saw my transformation, and then understood me as a man where, when I emerged, I knew myself to be a man. I knew to hold myself accountable, but I was also returning to a community that then held me accountable as a man. So I think that there's a lot, in, particularly in sort of what Jamie calls conchy culture, which is delightfully diminutive, but in the sort of like Burning Man, New Age kind of culture, we're on these voyages of self discovery. And I think there's a natural indeed mythic impulse in us to go to sea, for example. And we go and we have the ayahuasca ceremony or we go and we do the silent retreat and we want to have, as we are bellowing from our Instagrams, a life-changing experience. But (laughs) the life-changing experience devoid of a culture to receive it doesn't change the life because you're not strong enough, I think. You're not strong enough to return to this vacuum of culture as this heroically changed person because you just submerge back into the culture. And when that vacuum of culture has devoured the value of these tools, i.e. through like Instagram wellness influencer culture, you come back and you're like, okay, I've done the thing. What should I do? I'm going to make a startup about it. You know, I'm going to become part of capitalizing it because that's of course the track that the culture has available to you. So At a risk of simply bemoaning the sad nature of things, I want to make sure that we're leaning this conversation towards the wisdom that you've learned through the interviews you've done about the antidotes to these problems. And so let's speak a little bit about where we are at today. If the mythopoetic men's movement has been devoured by this cultureless dominant culture, if initiations and rites of passage and these exultant peak experiences are also being devoured, what can we cleave to? And I'm guessing that the answer is myth.
1: <laughs> nice lead-in. Okay, let me talk about myth now. So, myth. What is myth, right? And again, I'm not a particularly academic scholar in this. I've read a lot. I've sp- spoken to these folks you mentioned, or maybe we will talk more about Martin Shaw. Has certainly emerged as a incredible voice for this, is a storyteller out of the UK who's participated in a ton of rites of passage initiations, and I really. I think it's important to say that myth, well, first of all, in this culture, or modern translation typically means something that isn't true. That's interesting, just to note. If somebody says, oh, that's a myth. That's typically where people go, right? If they haven't been steeped at all in any of the more, very recent, more reclamations of myth. And so you have to wonder, how did that word suddenly be, mean something that wasn't true, right? Because you, you have to wonder if that's the go-to for many. And if you dig a little deeper, you might say, okay, well, so what there's myth and and then there's fact right and then there's truth and that understanding and there's a whole elongation that i won't get into now but that you can trace back the origins of these two understandings of what is true and what is truth right and i will just say that to discover what is true requires a relational element so let's say you might be having a conflict with someone and you go back and forth on the facts. Well, you did this and then, well, yeah, but you did this. And basically the, there's no way of meeting there because you're both stuck in your own truths about what happened, right? This is the truth of what happened. This is my truth. Oh, this is my truth of what would happen. But if you really want to find out what's true, which if you use that word right in a context of, I believe, building to true something, that it's a relational revelation to say, oh, well, what's true, in this conflict is I'm really sad about where our relationships landed. I'm sad that we've deteriorated so much that this is what it's become. That becomes a, what's true between us now in this moment. And so there's a bridge there if you can find what's true between you, not just in conflict, right? But, and so I offer this up to say, well, then myth. What was myth then? And how did it get essentially downgraded to something that's not, oh, it's just not true. It's just a myth. Because I would say this is also a consequence of the loss of culture, because a culture-skilled place, they would enter into probably an ongoing sense of inquiry with each other to kind of be in a dynamic relationship to what's true between them, right? Including the health of the place and the health of the village, that they would understand that as an achievement, not as something they could beat each other over the heads with, because there's no village in that, if everybody's right. There's this great line too around relationship though, which is, well, you can be, what is it? You can be right or you can have a relationship. you know. And sometimes those things aren't, they're not true. (laughs) So we go to myth. And so myth today has certainly arose again. And it's not like myth went anywhere, but maybe it just got relegated to movies in Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. It sort of, it just got, oh, okay, there's mass sort of, I mean, beautiful shared myths that are still present and have been. But then there's this other way of this mythopoetic way of thinking and approaching which in to me is mostly about how do we perceive or wrangle meaning right from our day-to-day lives and from the happenings and bly talks about this though that there's this been this collapse of the mythic imagination and so when we operate only on mostly literal terms it's just like a very flat surface there's not much dimensionality you could say well you know, here's the facts about climate change. Okay, that's one one way of understanding, an important way of understanding. But mythically, you know, what's going on? You could say, here's the issues with masculinity today, this and that, and stats of depression and suicide and all this stuff. Okay, yes, those are important, and that's one way. And then if we look in the, through the mythic lens, we can see, oh, a lot of other things become accessible to us that weren't before we were able to do so. So I want to put that, and the last thing I'll say about myth is there's a danger of only thinking of myth as psychological, essentially only as interior. And King War Magician Lover, I think has contributed to that kind of stuff where it's, oh yeah, these are archetypes within us and I'm Beowulf in this moment. And there's a way of really kind of only thinking, oh yeah, it's all about my internal world, my internal space. And yet an older understanding of myth is that it's actually a way of relating to place and to the deities of place. Like it was a way of actually, I don't want to say anthropomorphizing in a way, but sometimes that's a bad word in the sense of, oh yeah, you're just, you're putting humanness on things that aren't human. Okay. But there's actually a way of saying, okay, but they're still sentient beings. And how do we speak to them? How do we engage in reciprocity and understanding with the place and with the spirits of place? And I believe that was also a major function of myth, that it's a danger to say, oh, it's all internal. That's the only thing that matters because we lose the world.
0: I'm glad you brought up the danger of the internal. My podcast, Life as a Festival, is grounded in the transformative experience of ultimately Burning Man, but also other gatherings and group experiences. And for many people who actually have an experience that is properly soul-affirming in community, they often take that and turn it into a very interior process of personal healing and transformation. And if you look at what's available on Instagram, in terms of where Instagram, TikTok, where a lot of young people are getting direction about what is mental health. So many people are suffering and feeling alienated and they're looking to what's immediately at their fingertips, which is social media. And social media tells a story of self-care and tells a story of manifestation and tells a story. There's a, it's a very self-oriented story, which is not giving the refuge that people are looking for because the refuge is not in the self. <laughs> the refuge from the self is not in the self. The suffering of mental health, which is a suffering of, on a, from a story perspective, it's mental health has a lot to do with the suffering of the self but coming back to the mythic i want what i may, wanted to make sure we talked about today what is a pitfall of the magical thinking that can come from a cursory understanding of the mythopoetic and not a deeper understanding so for example people bandy about the idea of shadow work constantly i'm doing shadow work but <laughs> Proper shadow, your actual shadow is something you can't see. So when you just say that you're doing shadow work because you're being confessional about something that might be transgressive or something like that, there's a cursory understanding of some of these key aspects of a mythological perspective on human development. And kind of like what we were talking about earlier about this cultureless culture that eats culture, the cultureless culture that eats culture also functions best in an atomized human experience where we're all these individual selves on our little glowing screens being told to focus on self-care and being told that we are the heroes of these stories. And in that environment, a mythopoetic perspective, an unstudied mythopoetic perspective, I think can be harmful. And so I wanted to make sure that we touched on that as we are approaching it. And I'm curious Mm. whether you agree with this perspective and also if in the interviews you've done, there is an antidote that might be available to people who are accessing a lot of these materials in these little TikTok sound bites.
1: Well, okay, a couple of things come to mind. One is I went through a separation a closing ritual with a former partner. This is maybe back in 2017. And at this point, I'd been steeped in Tamara pretty heavily, which is the community in Portugal, which finally the film that we discussed in that former episode, Can Free Love Save the World, the film is now coming out this year and we've been doing screenings. Those have been incredible. But I'll just say at that point, I was pretty steeped in what I would, I would understand as a, as a village way, right? Of a way of understanding of moving that had fundamentally altered me completely in the paradigm that I was operating in and much of what we've been talking about. But so in this separation, we had others present. We called them in so that there would be, I think there were six folks and then a friend who was essentially holding the ritual space to go move through this closing moment, this closing ritual. And I know this kind of stuff happens more and more these days in different communities and great that it does. But what was interesting was there was a couple there and one who had been to Tamara, the woman who had been to Tamara before I did even, and was very steeped in this stuff. And she was dating somebody who was, I believe, very fresh to this stuff. This kind of, whoa, wow, you're just sitting with people as they're going through a closing ceremony? Wow. So there was a certain unfamiliarity, but a a willingness. And so we went through this whole process. And then the next day, we had breakfast. I had breakfast with this couple. And the fellow said something to me, which was uh, just so fascinating to me. Because it really revealed, he was just speaking from the way of seeing that I think is prevalent in a dominant culture that is very much fundamentally about one's own heroic self. And he said, wow, that was so interesting, you know, being at the closing ceremony, you know, I appreciate it. It was really beautiful. And I can really see at a certain point with enough self-mastery,
0: it could just be the two of you that could do that. Mm. As if that was the aspiration, that you needed community to get to the point where you didn't need community.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I was like, wow. And I really, I let that sit and I was I said to him, I was like, okay, I appreciate that. And that with your spirit of what you're saying. And I don't think you saw what you think you saw. And I essentially just shared with him. I said, I'm steeped in this understanding that unless we give opportunity for quote, the village to show up, there's no village. As in it just doesn't happen because you go to potlucks and I used to do that. I used to live in the suburbs. I used to create potlucks as much as possible. But ultimately, a lot of folks just get end up getting together and they do what Charles Eisenstein calls shared consumption. That's essentially what it ends up being. Hey, you know, let's watch the game or let's, whatever it is, it's like, let's, let's participate in shared consumption. But that's not real culture. And so culture shows up in certain key moments, often threshold moments of ritual, of necessary coming together because it creates a lot of, you could call it alchemical heat, right? That This is one of the functions of ritual. And for most folks, the most familiar moment for them that that maybe it doesn't feel as much of a stretch, but it hits a lot of the boxes, ticks a lot of them, is a wedding. And a wedding is, that's most familiar people, oh yeah, of course, you know, you got the family there, people are witnessing you, there's a power in that, you know, we celebrate after, all these kind of things. So there's a certain sense of, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But what about initiations, right, of the maturing process from, you know, kid to adult? I mean, somebody might say, yeah, bar mitzvahs, okay. That's an echo of that, I think. But there's certain alchemical moments, separations, deaths. There's many stories of cultures, even today, that they have very particular ways of circling around the folks that are in grief process when there's been deaths in families, and in particular, significant deaths where elaborate situations. I've heard one, I believe it was in South America, where the culture would essentially, you know, the families who that were affected by the death in their family, they would just sit in their home and basically everything would be brought to them for whatever it was seven days and they could just grieve right they could just be with the grieving process people would come all the time they were never alone and they would just circle around and probably weave in and out of you know maybe music or speaking and i thought wow that's a really achieved culture then you don't just heroically quote do it yourself and so I say all that because this is what it sounds like when people see even things that they think they, they know what they're looking at, but this adherence to the heroic self is like it permeates the water completely. And so you talk about Instagram and and you know shouting transformation from the rooftops and shadow work and absolutely it's all right there because there's this sense of if I'm not seen in doing this, what I'm doing, is it real? Does it matter? if i'm not seeing it but there's a pseudo need being met of course with social media which is hey look at me doing my shadow work and then of course that's the ego's way of subverting that very thing and so you basically yeah you have to engineer circumstance you have to engineer the containers by which you're not in charge which again is hard to do because it requires you to rebuild a certain degree of solidarity and trust with others that are also willing to understand what they're participating in. And it's not impossible, of course, it happens, and I've been in on it. And when it does happen, again, for me, that's, it's a fundamentally different approach than what I would say is a, like a consumerist mindset to essentially trying to create a ritual.
0: I'd like to talk about a ritual that you partook in, an initiation that you completed a four-year cycle you completed one year ago around this time. I've been very impressed and perhaps I'm not supposed to be impressed, but I'm impressed by the fact that you did it. And I'm curious in the context of what we're describing, whether this experience of initiation properly satisfied a mythic need of yours. And just to set this up, I've done a lot of initiatory experiences that I think ultimately have not satisfied a mythic need for me. They've been part of me telling my own story, but they haven't necessarily left me on the other side feeling like I had completed a transformation into a new stage of life. Uh But you did a stewarded initiatory process that was a four-year cycle, very similar to a Sundance cycle, which is, the way we've described it, we call it a sit. I've always wanted to interview you on a podcast about that experience. And Mm -hmm. can you tell me whether and how... This satisfied a mythic need for a proper initiatory process for you as a man.
1: As I reflect on, like you said, you named a year ago, almost a year, I finished the fourth of this cycle. And how it works would likely be familiar to many who've heard about or been in something similar, which is out somewhere in the wilderness, four days three nights and no food, no water. That's the sort of basic architecture. And in this case, again, we talk about the the role of, of community, the role of others around this. This thing was actually kicked off, not because I wanted to do it and the others that ultimately ended up sitting. It actually was not. And that's a good sign, actually, if you don't want to do it because you realize, okay, this isn't like an ego stroke. It's actually genuinely, I was like, no, I don't want to do this. But what happened was a young, well, a mother of a young child, in this case, a young boy within our somewhat, I won't say lived community in the sense that we didn't quite live together, but we were, we came together around a shared endeavor of wonder and culture making. And there was a moment where she when in a time when we had gathered really spoke this, this sorrow around her boy coming into a certain age. In this case, it was, yeah, 13, 14. And she recognized that unless something was done, like there would be no moment for him. Like this whole, the older man coming in and whisking him off, right? To go through some some sort of necessary threshold, alchemical ceremony. And she saw the consequence of that on him. Like she recognized even her own limitations as a mother to say, wow, like there's something that I can't give him actually, which is a very achieved thing for a mom too. Come to that place and to say, actually, yeah, there is something that I believe, and that men need to come and offer him something that I can't. And this is, again, a culture, a moment of cultural poverty because so many mothers are asked to try the best they can to offer what they actually, rightly so, would not be uh, asked to offer, again, in a lived culture. But in this case, she put it out there. She said, Is there anything that can be done? And so the men actually circled around and were like, Okay, can anything be done around this? And we met actually for months thinking, okay, what could be done? We did research. There are certain things out there for young men, certain ways of introducing them to the wilderness in certain ways. And a lot of it can raise a lot of eyebrows for other parents, let's say, who are like, whoa, this is way out there. My kid's a baby. They don't want to do this. So all of those reasons why stuff like this doesn't happen, because they adhere often to the child to say, oh, no, they're not ready for this. But it's actually the parents typically who aren't ready for it. Who are like, don't take my kid out there. So we circled, and eventually, what came to you know recognize is like, wow, we can't ask a young person, in this case, young younger men, to do anything that we hadn't done ourselves. That became clear, because how could we, right? Say, yeah, yeah, you go out there, but I've never done it. No, you're right? We could do that. So then it came forth. Well, then we need to do it, right? We need to be the ones to subject ourselves to it first, to have any sort of trustworthiness around offering that to younger's to come. And so that's how it started. And I'll say that I absolutely was like, no, I don't want to do this at all. And yet there was this other compulsion to do so because for me it was, okay, how do I be useful to the youngers coming up? And that's the way in. It ended up being just as a overture, the hardest thing I've ever done. No question. Every year was the hardest. It got harder every year. And it was once per season as well, which is the way that we were guided into it. But the last bit of the architecture was that not only were we out there, but every time we were out there, there were folks gathered around a fire, not too far off, who were holding down their end of things. And this is, again, that relationship between, I, I could just do it. And I talked to a fellow, John Wollstone, who's my collaborator on the Tamara film. He read Bill Plotkin in his younger days, about a decade ago. And Bill talks about in that interview, just going out to the desert and just doing it on his own and the danger of that. And John actually was inspired at the time to just do the same, kind of go out there and just, okay, I'm just going to do it heroic style. And it ended up being very dangerous for him that nobody was holding down the pillar of, okay, here's where you can come back to. And so again, there's, there's a willingness to circle around the village or ask the village to show up to hold these kinds of things, which is part of the architecture. If it's a solo thing, there's no village and it's just you. And there's a missed opportunity to
0: begin that process of regeneration. Before this conversation, I asked you about whether we would talk about this. And you said that there was a danger of framing it as a heroic experience. This is something that you and I have talked a lot about. To me, that sounds horrible. And I would only do it if the bards would sing my praises for, <laughs> for generations hence. You know, like I would do it literally to be heroic. To me, when I think about doing that, it's like, well, I would go and I would sit on the mountain and I would do the thing and then afterwards, and I'd save, this boy would be saved by me. And I think that there are, there are a lot of people who need the validation and the experience of being a hero as a motivation for this sort of thing. When I think about myth, I think about Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. And we have these kind of like self-architectured hero's journeys. And it's so great to be the hero to be the surly Han Solo, or like wh- whoever it is. So w- this thing that was the hardest thing you'd ever done, why was it so important that it was not a heroic feat? Yeah, good question. Here's what comes to me, is the hero,
1: the frame of hero is useful, certainly. And I believe in King, War, Magician, Lover, that he says that the hero is a boy archetype. It's the last boy archetype. Right exactly and so there's a value in it certainly and there is something helpful in possibly even using that as the starting point right? for let's say a younger to get out the door to be willing to say okay the quest the call has come and this is you know this is my moment and to do that right to leave heroically there's actually i think there's value in that actually that that to to appeal to that archetype but what happens out there and this has been my experience What actually happens out there is not heroic but a diminishment it's a necessary diminishment of i believe an encounter with a presence an intelligence a power that is just so much vaster than me and certainly in that moment that it's actually a process of being broken down and so there is a value though to that diminishment and i've even heard the term intentional trauma Right, Proper rites of passage are actually intentional trauma of the egoic self encountering something bigger than them. Because we talked about this, I think, in The Boy Hero Must Die. That unless the boy encounters something vaster than them and benevolent, hopefully in some fashion, right? And then to come home and to be given the meaning of that, right? To be said, okay, this is what happened out there. Not so prescriptive, but it likely happened like this, but this is what it means. Like you get to be nobody in some sense you went out there somebody you came back nobody but you're somebody with us here's your role with the rest of us because hero in a village is the worst thing ever right to have heroes in the village there's a great um riff right at maui in the the film moana they actually use that quite a bit where he's the actual bumbling guy that kicks the whole thing in motion like steals the heart of tafiti ends up toxifying the oceans right because he's trying to prove himself rather than be a villager, right? And so there's a recognition there that the maturing of the hero is actually come to come back to the village, but to be diminished enough, to be humbled enough, to be willing to participate and to kind of say, oh, I'm not on top of everything. I'm actually part of everything.
0: And that's a necessary maturation. So would I fuck that up for you if I title this podcast to the great and heroic diminishment of Ian McKenzie? <laughs> That's got a nice right. To it, the though. great and heroic, heroic diminishment. I might do that just to be cheeky with you. Well, could could it be the could it be the subtitle? You know, subtitles don't really work for podcasts. Really, it's just too long. Okay, so I'm interested in the idea of what we bring back, what wisdom we bring back. We're to be honest, like I see such flailing. When it comes to leadership and in in my own life still with what I inquire, there's so much sort of like spiritual masturbation around our growth. We're personally developing and we're growing, but to what end for what for whom? And I want to go to now the Mythic Masculine podcast, which you have invested the last few years in developing. And you're hosting a series of conversations with different leaders. And I find that as a podcast host, the role of interviewer is humbler than the speaker on the stage because it is this kind of like, professional curiosity and I love that role and I love that you stepped into that role in with mythic masculine because you're very smart and you're very good at talking about things I'm sure your guests have enjoyed speaking with you these many years Mm -hmm. I want to hear what you have learned with the mythic masculine and if possible and if it's easeful for you if you can reference some episodes that have been meaningful in these themes we've been discussing so that the listeners to this show can then be pointed towards episodes of your show that are A, good entry points and B, have just some of those tasty nuggets that we're all looking for that take us beyond the preoccupation with self and personal development into a place where we can actually better construct more of a sense of village and be villagers. Take it away.
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, it's good to name that I believe I'm on episode 55 or 56. So over the three or so years, it's actually not a lot of episodes. Uh, when I think about other podcasts, maybe even yours, that may be up in the hundreds. And so at the same time, I do feel like I've managed to cover a certain breadth of the inquiry, in particular, going back and talking to folks like Michael Mead that were there at the epicenter of this initial wave of the mythopoetic men's movement. But then, of course, broadening it that into inviting other guests, other mythologists, Sharon Blackie was an early episode. She introduced a lot of other archetypes that are masculine archetypes, right? That that are beautiful and aspirational, as well as indigenous voices in particular that really helped to create, again, they, they invited a d- totally different cosmology for even understanding how to ask questions about this.
0: What's a great entry point episode that you've done that does a reframing of cosmology? Because I think that's super helpful.
1: Yeah. Well, two in particular. One is with Dallas Goldtooth, which is called Decolonizing Men's Work. And then the other one is Jared Kustena-Hun, who is a Kautzen fellow, out in, actually know where I live here, but the episode's called Language is a Lens. And what they introduce is, again, a whole cosmology of moving in relationship with people, with place that, you know, we can broadly understand to mean indigenous. That for me as well, this invites a different understanding of oftentimes when people say, often, quote, non-Indigenous people, right, here that term. They're like, well, we're all Indigenous to planet Earth. There's this sort of, what about us thing? And it's like, okay, sure, yes. But again, if I think this is trying to speak to Indigenousness or an Indigenous way as an achievement versus an identity and that it, it's a precious way of understanding and moving in the world like a real culture is. And so to be invited in these interviews it was has been profound because it actually, again, it starts to short circuit all of the matrixes of certainty that folks carry from, I would make the case now, from a colonized lens that we have to unlearn a lot or to release. And I'm not saying I'm there at all, but I just I deeply appreciate these peaks into these different cosmologies. That had been so helpful. And one gem from this kind of understanding is that even the question, what does it mean to be a man? Is that's a colonized question, I would say. By that meaning, it's a placeless question, right? It's a universalist question. What does it mean to be a man? Because what's saying is at all times everywhere. And that doesn't come from a, a particular place of a particular people who would answer that in a particular way. So if I talk to an Indigenous folk and I say, well, so, you know, can you answer that question? They'd say, well, this is what it means here, and this is what we tend to do. I I haven't heard them really say, this is the way it needs to be everywhere. Everyone needs to be this way. Masculinity needs to be like this everywhere, right? Because that's the impulse. And I would also say that's the wound of living in a culture of a cultureless understanding around gender, is that it becomes a problem to solve. And this is where you get this reactivity. And I say, yeah, Stephen Jenkinson, again, if I don't say him a few times in my interviews, it something's up, but there's one piece he says, not about this in particular, but it's very applicable. He says, any reaction to something creates a twin, not an alternative. Any reaction to something creates a twin, not an alternative. And so I apply this to so much of the conversation around gender, right? And we see so much of the, reactivity to how gender is the universalist oppressive role of gender in the dominant culture a reaction to it is to say anybody is anything we can choose what we want to be and that's the great victory but you can see now that so much of that is actually reaction it's just the mere opposite it's the twin whereas if you go to a place-based understanding of gender and culture your questions change completely all right and you say okay well what's masculinity in this culture in this time What is the function of masculinity? What is the way of masculinity, right? In this place and in this time, it becomes specific. And all of a sudden, you have a chance to answer it without reverting again to the blunt instrument
0: of universality. God, I love talking to you. You're one of the people that I speak to where I'm like, oh, that shit is new to me. (laughs) The place based gender stuff, I'm surprised it hasn't come up in our conversations previously, but. God, that's so helpful. And one of the things I wanted to talk about on the show today is this non-binary movement that we're seeing, particularly with Gen Z at the moment. And I I, I love how you say this, the no gender victory. That's where we should aspire to. And I don't find that to be a victory because to me, or at least for me personally, in this place at this time, the 40-year-old white male that I am, to be genderless is not a victory. To me, to have gender be something that leads to creation and connection and flow and play, that's, to me, a victory. Not that it is completely removed. And the idea of the place and time is so meaningful. So let's narrow into that and say for you, Ian McKenzie, right now in this moment, what is masculinity? What is the aspiration of masculinity in the time and place that you find yourself in? through the mythic lens that you've been working with. What is the aspiration of being a man for you?
1: Mm. A couple of things come to me as maybe the groundwork to get to where your question has led us. And first I want to address the Gen Z thing. And I think it's important to say, on my understanding of Bill Plotkin's map of the maturation of the psyche or the human development wheel, of which people can find it online. It's referenced in many different ways. It's a, I think it's a really brilliant look at essentially what are the different stages of human development, and he talks about what is their gift and like what is their sort of necessary achievement. And as you progress through and sort of late adolescence, I believe there's a it might be thespian at the oasis something like that as the mythic archetype for that time of your life. And I would say in general, we understand teenagehood as really a time of experimentation with one's identity. That's actually part of that stage of life. And classically, yeah, wearing all sorts of clothes, trying on different looks. I don't know, maybe I don't know if they still around, but like goth or metal or rock and roll or jock, like all this stuff. It's like trying on these different archetypes for this, particularly this stage of discovering one's identity, and which is all part of the West that he talks about as well. West is very much like the internal reflection finding oneself the realm of that kind of mystery and burning man as a side note is very much a place of the west it's pure west as as an exploratory playground of the individual certainly there's communal aspects but you know people go there and they have amazing transformations as i did as well but at the same time generally right there's a period okay i've tried on a lot of things as an adolescent gets it now ideally into sort of early adulthood And they say, okay, now I'm going to, I mean, you could say, now I'm going to really dig in and find out who I am, what I'm here to do. And that typically should kick in early twenties and the twenties mostly spent like that. I mean, that that was, it was for me, although I got married, you know, mid twenties and that kind of kicked in a sort of leap a bit too quickly, I think along my own journey into wait, who am I? And what am I actually into? And what are my relationship styles and all this stuff? Because I didn't know. And so I just say this because I think there's a danger in looking to gen z for example and saying oh they're just post-gender they figured it out or something as opposed to oh yeah of course they're in their adolescent stage they're discovering who they are and how they like to be and not to then extrapolate that to like that's the future that that's how it's going to be at every life stage for example or culturally so that kind of hopefully just adds a bit i think at least what's helpful for me in that context and then in terms of a sense of masculinity, what do I understand masculinity to be, I think there's something really necessary around binding a sense of purpose to the moment, to what time are we in, culturally, biologically, or sort of climatologically? Where are we, right? We're in a pretty massive emergency with the climate crisis. We are in a period of profound dissolution in a lot of ways. And... We need to be imaginal cells of participatory possibility in this time. And unless, I'll just say men's work, right? Unless that inquiry, unless I would like to see, unless men's work as a whole doesn't include that sense of where are we now, then it's simply more ego games. It's simply more personal growth, navel gazing, in my opinion being transformed over and over again for one's own sense of self and own transformation to me is, okay, great. Been there, done that. Maybe Jamie Will would agree. Something like that 80-20 thing. You know, you do it once, great. 80% of the gains. Okay, now time to get to work. And so I think that men's work needs to have that kind of ecological consciousness as part of its central axis, actually. That unless it includes that, it's just not, it doesn't know where it is. And so I'd say aspirational masculinity now has to include that sense of, oh, we, we are called forth into participating in the ways that are necessary in order to steward right this moment away from ecological catastrophe into a possibility of thriving life. And this is what Pat McCabe, the Indigenous grandmother, said so beautifully in our conversation, thriving life in a prayer for all men. A lot of folks still write me about that one. That came out around episode 12 or 13. Both of us are in tears by the end of that because Pat... Offers a blessing to men. And this is an older woman now blessing men. Basically, what she says is, I see your inherent nobility. Like, I see that you want to participate meaningfully. I see that you're good. Like, you want to be of service. And I see you in that and I bless you in that and I call you forth in that. And again, I have men in tears because they've never had that. They've never had that. And all of the reactivity and woundedness around ways of toxicity showing up in masculinity absolutely needs to be called out and stopped and interrupted and all that. But there also, I believe, needs to be that blessing, that calling forth. Because otherwise, that energy, the true noble energy, and this again maybe taps into that sense of the boy hero, wants to be of service, wants to live a life of purpose. And in a cultureless time, we've like, short-circuited. We've lost track of putting that purpose to good use. This is where it ends up being more money or more cars or Andrew Tate, right? Because we haven't bound that sense of inherent nobility, that sense of erotic purpose towards its true end. And th- this is the consequence we're seeing. And so if we can bind it once again, if we can hold up that beacon and say, "And we need you. We need you now. And here's how something becomes possible.
0: Thank you for that. I haven't listened to that episode, but the idea of the blessing and the invitation, I think speaks to the longing to be witnessed as a member and to be of service as a member. And I think that without communities, we are just trying to construct that in our own hero's journeys, our own sort of, I did the thing. Can you see that I did the thing? It's like, daddy, look, daddy, look. (laughs) We're a generation of daddy, look, you know. Mm -hmm. And then to have a deep and profound blessing from a grandmother to say, I see. And what's next? And I invite you to what's next. And I love that you are inviting people into what's next. And so let's talk about what's next. You, like me, have had a number of different interests. And the idea of mythic masculinity has been something that has evolved after touching a lot of different things. And you have this podcast and it has gotten quite popular and has been a very worthy contribution. And now this is turning it into a new offering. And part of why we decided to do this podcast today is as an invitation to an actual course that is now being offered that's around restoring masculinity. And you always want to end a podcast with a bit of promotion, support people in their ventures. But in this case, it isn't simply great conversation, now let's promote what you're doing. In this case, it's more like, in the thread of what we're discussing, this seems like a natural next step, which is to invite listeners to participate uh, in this course. And so, can you please describe to me and to our listeners who you have convened, what they will be teaching, and why this is a worthy use of all of our quite valuable time?
1: Thank you for that. The Course is hosted through Advaya, which is a UK based platform. They hold a number of high profile thematic courses. The previous one they did was Women in Power, like Women and Power. And then this one came about because the founders reached out and they really enjoyed the podcast. So, for one, and so we were in talks for months, and I was like, okay, you know, maybe I could do something. And what emerged was this, which I love the variation on how one might hear it, which is restorying masculinity or restoring masculinity i mean it what it is is restoring right but i love that actually it's easy to misinterpret quote but still have that same sense of vitality what does it mean to store to restore masculinity to its rightful place and so i would say that's the spirit of the inquiry and in many ways the podcast has been a preparation for this because again bringing in all these voices in this particular journey there's two guests per week, along with myself, where we'll go into different key thematic areas that had came up during the journey of the podcast. And so there's some familiar faces, such as Pat McCabe, as I mentioned, Bio Komalafe, as well as others, Adam Jackson from Sacred Sons, Keoni Hanalei, who's a Hawaiian Fern Medicine fellow, That it, more recent guests. And bringing them all together in this fashion, I'm very excited because it will, in many ways, bring together the most current sense of this inquiry that I could muster, as well as do it live with folks present that will create, I think, again, some kind of alchemical container of possibility to see, yeah, where are we? How did we get here? And where might we be going? And, you know, again, at the risk of trying to make any grand declarations of universal anything, I still think that there's value in marshalling these folks together on this inquiry with a degree of intentionality to discover some kind of orientation all right, of how to approach this. And no doubt it'll be a polyphony, which is a, a multitude of perspectives, but hopefully coming to a greater sense of shared understanding and from understanding is coherence. Well, I'll share just a little bit. I had a dream not too long ago, but three or four days ago, where I was actually, it was somewhat of a mythic quest. And there was a, I think I was with a sort of fellowship of the rain kind of you know, troop. Maybe you were there. (laughs) I was there. And we ended up on some mountaintop keep. It was a like maybe a castle we were staying, but I think during the night, we started getting attacked from I believe the term the beast is a Valkyrie, right? It's like a feminine demon, I I understand. And we were sort of getting attacked and there was hostilities from this demon, this beast that we kept trying to fight, right? The troop. We were trying to figure out how do we get, get past our defenses or how do we slay this beast. And at some point, somewhere, I got the idea or the colonel came to me, wait, you can't win this way. And I somehow knew I was called to tether or untether a horse and ride out to meet this Valkyrie. And when I did, I remember that encounter quite strongly that we met and the voice came to me it said, you will fight what you don't understand. You have to Know me. And there was something in the meeting of the recognition. You will always fight what you don't understand, but that's not the way through. The way through is to meet, to find that level of intimacy in that relationship. And then that utterly transforms what's possible. The conflict ends. And this goes all the way back to the sense of contact. I would say in that moment, me and this beast, this Valkyrie, this wild feminine made contact And immediately the war was over. And I think that's a possibility for us in terms of this question. What does it mean to be a man? What is masculinity today? What is femininity today? If we can make contact in a meaningful way, the war will end.
0: Very heroic. I love that. That's beautiful. Give us the deets on the course, my friend.
1: Indeed. Well, the journey begins March 14th, runs for five weeks, again, two guests a week, and there'll be a couple integration additional times where people can essentially share their grievances, their curiosities, their whatabouts, and whatever else might come up, which I'll be stewarding those as well. So it'll be a rich and, I dare I say, transformational time.
0: So I ask you to consider joining us. Thank you, Ian. It's so good to see you and it's so good to have watched you and your work evolve in these last six years of being friends and being in this inquiry. And I really love that we laugh together and it's always a pleasure to interact with you professionally and personally. Thank you so much for coming on the show and I love the work you're doing. It's the Mythic Masculine Podcast Mm. and uh, Restoring or Restoring Masculinity coming up on March 14th. Great to see you
1: glad you're in the world gallivanting as you do as idea
0: thank you for joining us for life is a festival if you liked the show you can support it by sharing it with your friends following it on spotify or reviewing it on itunes if you'd like to get more involved you can join our facebook group life is a festival where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests if you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival. And I'll see you on the dance floor.